0: Thanks, Doc. God.
1: How we pray for peace in the Middle East and that
2: we don't end up with war and
0: or if we do, <coughs> let it be a just war and answer the evils. I mean it's just just wars happen. Um just happened.
2: People in Australia who are battling those horrendous <coughs> fires. 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 <laughs> definitely
0: have her Barbara you would you, come on, what is it, Er? I don't want to cry. Cry? We're well, okay. You, you want to say... Um. Take a second, we're not in a hurry here.
2: My adopted son has had a DNA test done. Oh, sorry. Has had a DNA test done? Yeah. And so he's dealing with an unknown father who has not ever recognized him.
0: Mm-hmm. The whole family, yeah. So, um, I don't know how
2: to open And I don't know that there's going to be anything bad.
0: I'm not yeah, worried. yeah. I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you had the courage to do that too. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord. Wait, I'm going to wait until everybody's this is all right. yeah. praying. You want to take it back to your seat? I'm gonna, come on. We're too old to be rushing around. That's one of the advantages of having aged four years, I think. <laughs> Thank you again, Lord for the gift of our life from you and the, the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself, particularly in the Mass this morning. Um, <sighs> it's a cold shower reminder. This man, um, sickened, decayed with leprosy, came to you knowing that you had the power <coughs> to heal him if you would but a great faith in him. He knew it. There wasn't a question in his mind. Help all of us to come to that same faith, particularly with problems. Um, no matter how difficult, how painful, no matter how much disorder is in them, what we've learned, Boethius, the scripture readings, is that there's nothing going on that you're not working to transform into good. That's our faith. Hold us to that faith, all of us, um, particularly when it takes us close to the cross. Something frightening, I think, for all of us. Give us the courage to go there um, and do it gladly. Hard thing to do, to be thankful, (coughs) particularly in burdens, but help us all to that, please. Ask us um, special care, particularly for the people in the armed services in all the um, war-torn areas, particularly in, The Middle East. Um, um, Help our political leaders make the right decisions. If um, if we're in war, um, please do what you can um, to spare lives. Keep the number of deaths down. Um, Watch over our country. We're facing grave, grave problems in our country today. Help our political leaders. People use reason in the wrong way so often. They mask disorders, vengeance, curses, self-justifying. It's rare to see somebody use reason in virtue. They put reason in the service of a good will. Give our leaders better wills. Help them to be virtuous, both sides, to help pull our country back together again. And ask a special blessing on... what's his name, Barbara? Patrick. Patrick. How old is he? 40. Forty. Midlife crises are hard enough to come to a point in your life and uh, want to f- discover who you are. I mean, it's shaky time. You reach a point and you realize. It, I think it happens to all of us, but different degrees. To wonder who we are, um, who we, where we came from. Ultimately, from you. I mean, I hope we all get back there, but. So we don't know who our earthly identity is, um, particularly if we've not known our parents. Um, Help Patrick go through this, um, help him find some assurance, some quiet, no matter what he discovers, and and, um, at the same time be with Barbara, Um, let her heart quiet and have an assurance that no matter what goes on, he's in your hands, particularly in her prayers. So let this be a time of strengthening her her talks with you. Um, Most importantly, help us um, to bring the faith of that leper um, to all that we do. We offer all of these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Talk there on, right? Yes. Can you all pull out the Magi poem? (coughs) I want to just. It really is good to see you guys, even some of you. (laughs) It really is good, honestly, it's good to see you. (laughs) Two weeks sometimes feels like two months, you know, it just seems like a long time. Anyway, it's good to see you. Um, I want to start with a question. Um, Eliot's poem, The Journey of the Magi, is a poem Written towards the end of his life, it's one among many, or a small handful, of poems that have explicit Christian things. Um, another one of the really important poems written during this period is a poem called *Marina*. It's about the daughter of Pericles. It's it, if we do anything, I'm not sure. We're, I'm not sure. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But if we do anything, my wish would want to be go back to *Winter's Tale* and do that again, and Pericles. Because I think they're the two most mystical, and Pericles is the most mystical play of nobody reads it because who's mystical in the secular world of ours? But he <coughs> loses his daughter um, and has to go through this long ordeal, this period of loss, thinks he's lost his wife and his daughter. It's very much like what happens in Winter's Tale when Leontes loses his son. Remember, his son dies, and he thinks Hermione, the queen, is dead. And um, when he sends Antiochus off with the babe Perdita to die, um, Antiochus dies. Paulina's his wife; she has every reason to hate him. I mean, think about how many women would be as forgiving as she is. She, you know, this is her husband; the King killed him. She's the one that takes on Leontes and tells him not to have any children. Think about that, because all the political rulers are trying to persuade him to have a child, to have a successor for a whole country. <clears throat> so imagine what's being renounced right here. <clears throat> She's saying, do not do anything, because the oracle, you know, that he sent for, and came said, um, Leontes is a tyrant. He will be without an heir until that which is lost is found. Perdita. And, and perd is what, what's forgotten, I think. That is, symbolically, will he recover his faith? And that's not up to him. Paulina says, swear to me, you won't have an heir till I tell you. She's waiting on the outcome of the oracle because her faith is in God, not a royal, kingly power, the power of a nation. So she's putting everything at risk. And so imagine how many counselors would political counselors would go along with something like that. And we struggle in our family to make renunciations. You know, uh, this is a nation. Anyway, there's a similarity between the two plays. They're very, very different um, in lots of ways, but there's that, that one theme in common. Eliot writes this poem called Marina, in a way of her, and he does the journey of the magic. And here's the question that I'd like to ask. How many of us during the Christmas season hear those stories, because every Christmas we do makes up epiphany, we hear the story of the three wise men going and then knowing what Herod's going to do, and going back another way. Part, part of the meaning of that is um, their lives are changed. They cannot go back who they were, having seen Christ. Um, we know that Saint St. Saint Stephen is celebrated the day after Christmas. He was the first martyr. And immediately after that, the loss of the innocents, the death of the innocents. So... Christmas is followed immediately by celebrations of death, horror, darkness. I don't think that's an accident. That's the church's wisdom, that that Christmas is a time when we bring joy and sorrow together. It's not one or the other. They don't cancel each other out. We're supposed to bear both of them. So um, when you read this, my question is, do you actually live it? Because one of the things that Eliot's doing is bringing that scriptural story into the present. So we can relive it. So it's told in our vernacular, our tongue, it's modern. Everything about it is modern, you'll see. And he's so aware, that the kings are so aware of the moment, that they even reach a point where they regret all the comforts of life, because they know those comforts make it harder for them to give them up actually enter into this moment because their lives are going to be changed the poem reminds me of the uh, Ignatian exercises I don't know if any of you have ever read them but in the Ignatian exercises Ignatius the the practices of the the exercises are to go back to a scene in the Bible and reimagine it with you there so you actually participate you go through the scripture being one with Christ as if there were no time boundaries time boundaries disappear we're christ is with us now we're with him going through those things our church asks us to do that all the time and we're supposed to be with him not just in our heads not in abstractions so um the part of the beauty of this is he's created a poem but it's like a palimpsest remember a palimpsest is <clears throat> it's a surface with buried levels underneath it that have been replaced gradually. That's what our faith is. It's levels of stories, scriptures. So that very often what goes on the surface scripture is carrying meanings from those surfaces, those those texts, those story, oral, written, underneath. That's what makes our tradition richer. And, and that's why, I mean, certainly, I hope you get it from the work we've done. It's why this course has been so important to me because the modern Catholic doesn't carry those traditions. He's largely in a Protestant vacuum with his faith. And we're asked to keep that tradition living because Christ is at work in every one of them. So here's the journey of the Magi. Did you take it? Have you taken it? Um, has what? Did what happened then get carried forward in our lives? This is what Eliot's doing. You'll hear it in the language. And <clears throat> More importantly too, notice what Elliot does with birth and death. Just be aware of that, okay? Because most people <laughs> in our world, Christmas comes, the last thing on anybody's mind is death. You're out buying presents, you're looking forward to the tree, the tree gets buried under presents, everybody's supposed to be happy. It can be a hard time for lots of people. Lots of people suffer. But, you know, the commercial take on it, be happy, be joyous. There's never a hint of anything, any sorrow. Any birds. So pay attention to what Eliot does with birth and death. Okay. <coughs> the journey of the Magi. To <coughs> the cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey, and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, and the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times when we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sugar, and the camel men came cursing and grumbling, and running away, and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out, and the lack of shelters, and the cities dirty, and the towns unfriendly, the villages dirty, and charging high prices. A hard time we had of it. At the end, we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn, we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a water mill beating at the darkness, and three trees on a low sky. Assuming you're all thinking three crosses, but here, they are three trees and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands and an open door, dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wineskins. But there was no information, and so we continued and arrived at evening, not a moment too soon, finding the place. It was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this. Were we led all that way for birth or death? There was a birth, certainly. We had evidence, no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought that they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We return to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. Do we go back after the Magi stories of Christmas and after Christmas, no longer at ease in our world? Are we detaching ourselves the way Christ has called us to? Um, That's part of what we're seeing in these three kings when they return. That leads to say, I should be glad of another death.
3: Why doesn't he say I will be glad? Sorry? Why doesn't he say I will be glad?
0: Good good for you. I don't want to take too much time because we don't usually talk about the poems. That's a good question. Can anybody answer that? What does it suggest that he says, I should be glad, instead of I will be glad for another time.
2: <clears throat> he's putting a should on himself, and we're always told, oh, don't should on himself. But he's putting a command on him, like if he doesn't, he's going to be guilty. I should be glad or not. Who says you should be dead? Death. So I like, yeah. Well, yeah, this, is, like, <laughs> should, there's is no he should. glad or would he be glad or not? Or is he think he's not going to be glad?
0: No, no, no. I think the point is... They're ch- well, stop me here. Your poor old son's good. There are times in our life where we reach points and look back, or even look at ourselves right now, full of regrets, wishing I were a better person. I spent my life doing this. And it's at those moments, because they really are liminal moments, they're liminal moments, when you know you're entering another world I don't like that term, but you're carrying baggage. I don't like that term. Yeah. You're carrying that old life with you. And you know you've got to change. You know, so you, you enter it. You, I mean, you can say, I will be, but you know, I, I should be glad of another. You're, you're wishing um, another death because what you're facing is going to be really difficult. You can't be the same person you were. What does that mean for you? Who in the world understands it? Anybody else?
2: Well, when we go through little deaths in our lives, die to self, die to right, our addiction, right. we, we become a better person. Right. And that's the birth.
0: Yeah, but, well, yes, and a death. Both. Yeah. And I think that's the, the, the center of the poem. Um,
1: if you just kind of look at the difference between should and would, it's, it's kind of, he's at a realization point, but he hasn't actually made the, the journey yet. It's like you realize you need to change, but then there's still, okay, well, what are you going to do about it?
0: Yeah, and it's, remember, I should be glad of another death. It's, um, who's, who, who in this, even with all the changes we make, this is, with all the changes that we all make, how many of us want to go to the cross? And I'm really saying that's not just death. I'm not talking about just dying. I'm talking about the humiliation, the scorn, being spat upon, a, a God who we're supposed to so we, we have to get so far away from the appearances of the world, our place in it, the way we see people looking at us, you know, the way we look at ourselves. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, um, and, and very often I think we want to avoid it. You know, there are different kinds of deaths. Um,
2: the other thing, Robert, is that he's he's English. He's right. He's English.
1: Yeah.
2: And um, that English are more likely to say "I should" when what they mean from our vernacular is "I would be glad of it to benefit. So it it may just be.
0: May but just I think there's mad. a yeah. I think there's a, 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 he Eliot's a master of language, and I don't think this is just dial or yeah dialectical or. It's a dialect, you know. I I think he means should because there's an element of an imperative Mm -hmm. here. You know, it's not I would, that's a conditional. I should has an element of an imperative. You know, that there's a push there. Um, The trying to get away from something, realizing the struggle, but realizing the meaning of death now that he's had this experience, you know, connecting death with Christ's birth. But Do you know
2: how he died? I'm Elliot, to, how did he
0: die? I don't know. Let's go on, Linda, because I, I want to get to this, and I don't want. I just want to keep with our practice to read lyrics. That very quick review. Um, uh, just a couple of things. Remember that in the Custom House, um, Hawthorne begins the story in the present. His present. So he sort of grounds it in present existence, in history, the, the changeover in the presidency, the presidents were real presidents, so we're not in a fictional, st- we're in a, what would you call it, a journalistic piece of writing, sort of basically, because he knows that he's gonna write a romance. It's the same sort of thing that ha- or Melville wrote. Remember, romance means, a story dealing with improbables, things that lots of people won't believe. When Melville published his works, people were really critical of him, lots of people hated him, they thought he was writing this nonsense. A whale story, a whale that has a will, that is trying to get out at something, because remember what's at stake in Moby Dick is, is this is, it's such, I, I use the word exorcism, that Melville has come to realize that there are in the um, Protestant, the fundamentalist, Puritan doctrines of that time, inhuman elements, absolutely inhuman, that some people could be born into this world without having any choice about their outcome, that God had predestined them to be damned. Is it, to me, it's an inhuman doctrine. That, but that was Calvin's doctrine. Ahab lives with that. I mean, everything he roils against is this sense that that that. It so takes away from any sense of human dignity that he's outraged. That well had that malice in him. He Remember that I'm going to break through the mask. He wants to get through the world of appearances to the thing beyond. And he knows that thing beyond is malicious. It's an evil. So he's, he's going after that element in, in um, Calvin that sees God as consisting of some evil, that he would do that. You know, that he would create a human being evil. It's so against our belief that everything God created was good. So the whole tragedy of Ahab deals with this sense that in the Protestant world for the last 200 years you know, leading to his time, human beings believe there was something evil in nature, that man was depraved, nature was depraved. That's their understanding of the fall. We've gone through this. So they're growing up in a world in which everybody's depraved. That's the effect of the fall. We never believe that. We believe our, we're wounded. Um, <clears throat> so he's writing about all these improbable things. Um, he, his work wasn't well-received and neither was Hawthorne's because Hawthorne's dealing with romances too, these strange things that can't possibly happen. So the people were very critical. Hawthorne's doing everything he can to root this story in the historical, in historical realities. And you know that a couple of things that are important. One is that he took on the sins of the past on himself. So one of the things he said. In, in an effort to try to undo the harm that his forebears did, he wants to take their sins on. So already there's a Christ-like spirit behind what he's doing. You know that it's you know, late in the um, Custom House where he makes that distinction between romance and realism that there's a difference between looking at something in a mirror and getting an exact image and looking at an image that um, is surrounded by fire or moonlight. Sunlight won't do it. In sunlight, you see things just as they are. But in moonlight or firelight, there's an aura that um, colors everything and imparts to them this sense of romance, of something mystical or ethereal, not, not as concrete. So we know that he's he himself is teaching us how to read this book. That it's grounded in history, but it's also going to deal with things that most empiric, empirical-minded people will not deal with at all. Um, so he's, he's he's preparing us for the story, and then the story begins, and we're in the story. Okay. Um, um, I don't want to go into the symbolism, but Remember when he first begins the story, he describes it in terms of handing on this black rose to the reader. So he's making it clear that there's not a clear distinction between fiction and reality. That we are are brought into the story and that story is brought into our lives, like that rose. He's handing it to us. To suggest that this is a living thing that we're taking in. It's a living thing. So symbolic, it's not a fiction out there. It becomes part of us. It's like the work of the spirit. Um, And um, so we're in a different world. Um, To get to the story, remember just quickly, the Puritans that came here um, were among those, along with the Catholics, who were the most severely persecuted in England. The Catholics and the Puritans suffered more, unless you look at the political battles between the, um, um, the Presbyterians and the Anglicans. Remember? Because they were trying to use their political power to force the other group to practice their religion and these wars took place. We saw that when we did Milton. These, the Puritans fled, went to um, the Netherlands and then things didn't work out there. they came to America. So they're coming in the hopes that they can live a faith without having a government impose religious beliefs on them, tell them how they were to believe. And the irony, as soon as they came here, they were at least as autocratic, dogmatic, authoritarian, as the Catholics they were fleeing from. Because you know when they come here, they have this faith, they're all united in this faith. Anne Hutchinson presents an immediate problem because she takes the position that because she does live her world by faith, her life by faith, she doesn't, she's not accountable to anything that goes on in the social world. She does not have to follow the laws of the majority of Puritans. Um, she thinks that's a violation of the work of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit elevates her above the temporal order. She follows him. The Puritans were outraged and took her to trial because their, belief, their, their faith was the same. They all came saying faith is the most important thing. They're not separated from that. Remember, there's no faith in reason in this world. Reason's corrupt. We're not in a Catholic world. We're in a Puritan world. There's no reason. There's no natural law to help. They don't believe that. Even uh, there's a couple of quotes that make that explicit. When John Wilson, you know, they're talking with Hester about having um, Pearl removed. Wilson says, we can't turn to profane philosophy. The tradition of reason. They've got to make that choice based on their faith. And you know, she, you, I mean, we see that it's a potential tragedy because Tess Kester felt she was going to lose her child, and she says to which, Hibbins, remember, that if she had lost, if Pearl had been taken away, she would have signed the Book of the Devil and the Force. She would have, she would have despaired and she would have been lost. It's an important moment. Um, the majority of Puritans held to the same doctrine, fide sola, sola fide, faith alone, But their belief was that the evidence of your faith was conformity to the laws of the church. You had to conform. Anybody (coughs) who didn't conform was seen as being outside that faith, among the damned, the sin. That's the great dilemma of Scarlet Letter. Okay? And what it's produced, and what Hawthorne shows us over time, is that it creates this black-white mindset that those who conform to the laws of the church Give evidence of their faith, um, it puts them in a position of condemning or looking down on others because they see themselves as above them, superior, better than. <coughs> so Anne Hutchins is, Hutchinson is exiled; she's removed from the community along with other the witches, the people um, fifty years down the road, whose behavior is going to be outside of the church's norms, they're going to be executed. They're going to be killed. So that's the degree of what we're talking about here. That's how important it is. What Hawthorne shows us, interestingly, is when Hester is separated, remember in the earlier chapter, she keeps getting wind of people looking at her, mostly women, who give her, I mean, some just scorn her, but others give some sense that they're carrying a sin and wish they could talk with somebody. And know the only person they can talk to is her. Because in that community, anybody showing sin, presumably among the damned. Is everybody clear on this? I just really want to be clear. So it just reinforces this sense that nonconformists are bad. I believe that same attitude is carried over in America today. And what it produces is what we know is an adversarial culture. Because they're so aware of the hypocrisy of Christians that they claim to have all this love, and that's the last thing they do, and it produces this rap adversarial culture calling those hypocrisies out. Nothing's different. We're in the same, in my mind. There's a lot that's the same. So, one of the things that Hawthorne makes clear are ironies that some of these, particularly women, give some indication in their looks that they carry a sin, that they have no way to deal with it. Um, and one of the things that emerges as we move through the book is that we become aware of the blindness um, because all these people claim to know the soul of these outsiders, the people that are cast out, you know the damned, and they don't have a clue they do not have a clue. The two people whose interiors we know are Hester's and Dimsdale, and both of them are wrecked by a sense of sin. And what increases the irony is everybody in that community, because of its norms of conformity and its tendency to look down on anybody who's in sin, is to look at Dimmesdale as he's a saint. Now, how deep is the irony there? Dimms, Hester's being married to carry the burden. I, 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 we, what we see is there's an element of spite to what she's doing. There's an element of pride because she's forced to do it. At the end of the book, she'll come back freely, which marks a real change in her. Um, but she, she bears it. Dimsdale doesn't because he's the minister. For him to disclose that he's the father of Pearl would shatter the community because they all think he's a saint. So that's one of the, his burdens. It's one of the reasons he can't. So that's the tension of the book. The irony is it's the poet who makes us aware, in a way the Puritans are not aware, that there's sin everywhere. And what the, one of the central truths of Scarlet Letter is it's only those people who carry their own sins who are able to really sympathize, love another. The people who think they're better than other people, self-righteous, condemning. So he, he says, the, the, he and Melville shared this term, the, brother, the brotherhood of sin it's the people who are most willing to carry their own sins who are more capable of loving other people instead of holding themselves looking down at them. So that's the great those are the I think the great tensions of the book and I wanna I wanna get to the end so that we look what happens with Dimsdale Confession, but Jake, go ahead. Yeah.
4: Yeah, and I don't mean to get us off the track, but I mean you said well regarded 'cause, it was wait. Not Cause I,
0: wait, wait sorry. I can't hear you and only hear you, sorry. You said the book was not well-regarded, particularly when received, it was Received, yeah,
4: right. Well-received, yeah. I'm struck by the number of people in this room who read the book either in high school or in college. Right. right. So over, it was published in 1850. Most of us were in high school or college in the 60s and 70s. What happened that this book became seen as the quintessential American novel to the American education system that the scarlet everybody had to read
0: the Scarlet Letter in the sixties and seventies. I mean, I don't have a. I don't think I have a good answer. That's a historian's province. I. My response to that is that, it. If you're in dealing with a school curriculum, and you have any sense of excellence, you want to. You get the very best books, and in the nineteenth century, the, the very greatest books would have been Cooper's. The Leatherstocking Series and Hawthorne and Melville. And if you were serious, and you had the limit, there's no way you could go through that without saying that Scarlet Letter and Moby Dick were the great books. The the most profound, the most beautifully written, and one of the most artistic. Cooper, I think Cooper's a great writer, but if you're going to narrow it down somewhere, you're going to come down to those two writers. Um, By the way, this is what I forgot to tell you, (laughs) and I don't want to lose the opening here, because I I know i forget i like everybody to hear this, the, the irony of it. You know that for the longest time Suzanne was saying, give the Scarlet, you, gotta, you know, teach it, and I kept saying, no, 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 I'm not going to teach this book, I already know it, I, did, I, I just didn't, I don't believe it, it stands next to Moby Dick, I think Moby Dick, I think Moby Dick is the greatest book of the 19th century. I had to choose. And choosing it only meant prolonging it and having all of you read another book. But I said to myself, I know it. Here's the the interesting thing. We had been going through the Shakespeare plays and I was noticing with a particular clarity that I hadn't had before how uniformly not good the men were. We were reading all these stories and the men weren't there. Um, You remember in uh, Merchant, All's Well, I can't remember, but uh, Chaucer, you know, it was the women who were the remarkable creatures. And here's the interesting thing, I I never had them in that sequence in school when I was being educated. So that focus was never given by, I've never heard another teacher say that. When I taught them, I taught them in classes, Shakespeare or Chaucer, you know. It was only because I put them together in that sequence that we read them that that fact stood out and it stood out with remarkable, I was, I told you, I was embarrassed. These men had nothing manly about them at all. They were scoundrels. Um, and one night we were at the dinner table and, um, and we were talking about Scarlet Letter and I'm sure I was saying I'm not going to do it. And then suddenly it occurred to me, here's another story. Hester's bearing the burden. Greensdale <coughs> is nowhere around. And it so fit in that I said, I'm going to read it. It's <laughs> just sort of carried forward. Where are the men in this? And, and today with abortion? To me, it is the great holocaust of our time, in my mind, worse than the Germans. This extraordinary holocaust, women have the power to kill kids, law, where are the men? Our laws have helped separate that. So here we were again and talking about it and I read it and here's what I wanted to say. So I went into this thing, I already read this, I did Hawthorne. I think I've told you the story. I read him for the first time at Berkeley, in our undergraduate. I didn't read, I didn't read much in high school. I was just too busy on the basketball courts. <laughs> um, but I read him in college first time, and I wept. I cried at the end. I just, I'd never been moved. I didn't know a book could do that. It never happened in my life. I carried that with me, and when I did the dissertation, I wanted to do it <coughs> at Hawthorne because I was so moved. Here's what I want to tell you guys, because I want to get to this. Um, I thought in my mind a new Hawthorne, a new Scarlet letter. I read him this time, and I had quest coming into the faith and growing in our faith because we hadn't converted yet. So I'm looking back at it, a Catholic, aware of things now, because the central issue is what do you do with sin if you don't have the sacraments? Dimsdale's got to confess, and he doesn't through the whole story. When we come to the end, he, make t- he makes this confession that to me is emotionally overwhelming. When he gets up there, he, for the first time since the sin, he's free. He will not have to carry. He's unburdened. <clears throat> but the effect of it, he's dead. I want to come to that because that to me is not a small issue. But I realized reading it this time, <laughs> you going to let. I realized I hadn't read the Scarlet Letter. I mean, I've been telling you this forever. When I hear parents say, oh, "I've read Moby Dick," or "I've read," you, you know, when they're talking about, you know, the Comfort Parents Day and their looking at the curriculum, and every time I hear that comment by a parent, what's secretly going on in my mind, is, you think you've read it, you've not read it. You can't read these things until you're older to bring enough experience into them. Who who in high school can get to the depth of what's going on here? Even if a teacher manages to get to it, and I don't think most teachers do, do the kids have the emotional insight? Have, Have they experienced enough suffering or larger questions to really enter into this. I, I would say no. So I read it this time and I was knocked over at seeing the implications of things that I had not seen when I said, I know this work, I'm going to do my dissertation on, you know, an and did my." So anyway, you don't want to read my dissertation, but I hope you hear what I'm going to say today because I hope it, mm-hmm. I hope it throws a light on this that I could not have thrown on it four years ago. Okay, so there's this schism, there's this irony, and Hawthorne opens it up. We go through most of the book aware of this, this black-white spirit in this um, Puritan community, Christian, deeply Christian community, with these disorders. Hester carries the burden. Dimsdale doesn't. He's the pastor. He's got to minister to the people, and we, and we we're allowed into the spiritual interior, you know, I remember what Barbara said when months ago or a month ago, that he opens the spiritual interior in an amazing way. We get to know these inside things that, that nobody else in the community knows. It's the poet once again helping us to see things we didn't know. Um, now, just quick review, last week, last week, um, I suggested that we reach the early crisis, because there's a number of crises in the book. The first crisis, I think, takes place in the minister's vigil, when Dimmesdale has this, um, this pang of this conscience. He's so stricken by what's happening. He gives a sermon to his people telling them, this is before the, the minister's vigil, telling them what a sinner he is. And Hawthorne's comment on him, um, look at 120, because that's where we're going to go anyway. Um, yeah, There's two things on this page I just want to read today, and then ask you to keep them in mind when we get to the end. When I, I, I want to do justice to the I, don't want the... I don't want my Catholic faith, our Catholic faith, to get into the way. You know how serious that is for me. I want to try to do justice to this book on its own terms, and then I have a couple of questions that are going to come from the outside. Um, but on 120, he's he's a pastor, he's a minister, giving his sermon, and he's acknowledging what a sinner he is. So here, this here, I want your real focus here for a second. He's confessing publicly. He's saying, "I'm a sinner." Now hold on to that because that's crucial for the question I'm going to ask shortly. He's confessing. He says. One twenty, The godly youth said they among themselves, the saint on earth, alas, if he discerns such sinfulness as his own white soul, what horrid spectacle would behold in... If they saw he was a sinner, it would be so much easier for them to acknowledge their own sinfulness. Yeah? The saint on earth, alas, if he discerns such sinfulness as his own white soul, what horrid spectacle would he behold in... They don't acknowledge that they're in sin. They believe they're among the same. The minister well knew, subtle but remorseful hypocrite that he was, the light in which his vague confession would be revealed. He had striven to put a cheat upon himself by making the avowal of a guilty conscience, but had gained only one other sin and a self-acknowledged shame without the momentary relief of being self-deceived. He had spoken the very truth and transformed it into the veriest falsehood. Now hold on to this, because I think any of us if if any of us had any experience in rehab, you know, where you're dealing with people, whatever drugs, it doesn't matter, and you're speaking to people, you know, if you have any awareness that some people can work a program, they can go through the motions, they can say I'm really bad, or, but how many of them really carry that acknowledgement into their depths, to their being changed? He's making a public avowal. And this is, this, up to this point, is the worst sin he's committed. Because he's confessing to something and really not meaning it. So the hypocrisy right here is really deep. Okay? Go to the next passage. I don't want to talk about these. I just, we'll come back to them later, but just hold on a minute. His inward trouble drove him to practices more in accordance with the old corrupted faith of Rome than with the better light of the church. That is, right now, he said, he tried doing penances... He took on all these penances. He was doing what the Romans, you know, were alleged to do. Do You remember all of this? I don't have to read it, I hope. If if you want, read go, go over it yourselves, but. Um, oftentimes this Protestant, pure and divine help had plied it on his own shoulders, laughing bitterly. He's trying to do all these penances. Um um, two, as it had been that of many other pious Puritans, to fast, not however like them, in order to purify the body and render it the fittest medium of celestial um, illumination, but rigorously he kept vigils. He thus typified the constant introspection wherewith he tortured, but could not purify himself. I, I just want to take a second. Um, why, why would these penances not be good in his mind? that he would associate with the Roman church, the corrupted Roman church. Why would penances be a sign of something wrong in his mind? Is that clear to anybody? Mm
2: -hmm. Does it have to do with redemption, that there's no redemption?
0: According to their belief, get the sacraments out. Remember, that's what's what's pivotal in this whole thing. Remember, this is a world without sacraments. So we've said this with Melville, Christianity declines into a moral code. According to the Puritan, who's the only one can, that can cure a soul? God, right? The, the <laughs> that, that second passage I wanna go to, I'm not gonna do it now, because I'll just mention it. Remember the great conflict in the first half, the crisis when, is when Dimsdale ascended the scaffold at night so it's like he's vicariously going through the experience when, in truth, he's not. He's hiding. When Wilson comes up with a ladder, the ladder, because remember, he's left, um, one, of, one of the historic people just died, so it's accurate in time. And he thought he's going to be discovered. He just cringed at the moment. In fact, he becomes so, what's it, feverish. In his, he imagined speaking something. He wasn't sure that he said it. He's so feverish in his terror here. The other crucial scene in the first half of the book is in that meeting with Chillingsworth when Chillingworth says, are you sure you've told me everything? Because a physician cannot cure the soul of a person if he doesn't know it. Because he has a sense there's something more. He doesn't know at this point yet that Dimmesdale the father of Pearl. But he knows something's wrong. And he's enough of a modern rationalist believing that if he only has enough knowledge, he can cure it. And there's this discussion, we did it last time when we met, that between the two of them where is making the claim that if he only had enough information, he could cure him. Dimsdale gets outraged. You remember? Because he knows, remember I, I talked about the parable where the scene where Christ, it's like the one this morning, when, when he comes to the uh, cripple and with the Pharisees and Sadducees there, and he says, which is it easier to do to heal this man or forgive his sins? They were horrified because he was saying, which is easier, obviously curing the man, but if he could do that, the assumption was he could heal. To claim that is to claim to be God. And they they believe, that's one of the reasons they took him to trial. Because for Christ to say that, said he he was claiming to be God. They could not stand that. That's one of the accusations they take with them towards the end when they condemn him and crucify him. Dimsdale is horrified that Chillingworth would make that claim because, in a sense, he was usurping the place of God. He's claiming he could heal a man. That's when he gets so angry and leaves, remember. And then, in the, a couple passages later, Chillingworth comes into the room and Dimsdale's asleep. And I think just because of the heat of the struggle between them, something's going on. Anyway, he opens the shirt. And we don't get the description, but it's as if he sees the Scarlet Letter there, and he knows for the first time that this is the man who made love to his wife, an adulterous love in his mind, and fathered Pearl. So those are the crises in the Okay, now let me stop. I want, I want to just read a couple of passages at the end, and then I want to get to the Confession. But any questions or reflections or comments on anything up to this point? You all have a, a good sense of what's at issue right in the story. How important it is and what Hawthorne's doing. I don't know if my wife is saying get on or... Yes. (laughs) That's why I don't often look that way. (laughs) I know that looks so well. (laughs)
2: That's an unfair
0: question, Robert. You should just go on. No, it's not. I just want to know, because we're we're a break point. Here's a funny, on Monday night, there's a couple, um, I think you know David, because he's come into the summit. David and Millie were here, and apparently when we were cleaning up, people were leaving, because you know David just had this operation and and has been doing really great, and Millie was asking how I was doing, because they know I've been having back problems and leg problems, and two of them were talking, and I... I saw the smiles come over both of their faces just as we were about to leave, and I said, "So what's going on?" And I, I somewhere in that, Suzanne was telling her how stubborn Robert was because of the way, he <laughs> <laughs> and she was giving her a knowing look because David has been a headache to her that he's not doing everything. <laughs> I was laughing at it, but. no questions or anything on this first half. Just, just a thought. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that. <clears throat>
1: book takes me back to is some of our previous readings with uh, the Snopes trilogy and a lot of the short stories that we read because you kind of see the fallacy in the society that that existed there as well where you know the the humans start to to lay out laws that are are clearly not aligned with God's laws and our human nature and then they start living those and you can kind of see what happens to the society when that happens because one of the things that you know I, I questioned was what you know you know these are kind of like the same people that were the founding fathers. So what was different? Because clearly there was a big difference between the people who managed to get together and form a new nation and write a constitution right. yep. still holding up today. Yep. And this group of people who seem to be clearly misaligned, and it just seems to me it, it, it does also go back to kind of those those points that we picked up when we were doing some of those readings that you know, and, and you know, it goes back to the Pharisees if you will, where you, you, you take the God's laws in the wrong direction It can really screw up your society.
0: Yeah, and they're so hidden, you know, buried so often. I mean, um, I'm so glad you brought up the Snopes trilogy, Fred, because um, when we were doing it, if you remember. I what comes immediately to my mind, because I know I put it that way when we talked about it, that, um, uh, Montgomery is able to use the laws to hide. And we were talking about enabling, that how, because I was asking the question, what do you do with this adultery, you know, and how do you deal with it? Everybody knows about it. Um, nobody speaks about it. They go around it. And the enabling that goes on was focused in that scene where Montgomery, where they were going to charge him. And he made it clear to them, there's no way they would, because to do that would embarrass their whole community. And respectability, holiness wasn't what they lived for, respectability. So respectability again and again and again, all the way through Faulkner and Melville, respectability becomes that shield. You hide behind it, you refer to it. It keeps you from risking the suffering that it will evolve if you break it. Or accepting it. Yeah, or, or, or hide from the suffering by accepting it. Yeah, I mean, just, anyway, I'm so glad you said that, yeah, it's been, it's been a constant, yeah, one, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to prolong this, but it seems to me one of the interesting differences between the founders is they were steeped in this philosophic um, political tradition. They knew knew the philosophers, the Greek historians, the Roman historians. They knew what had happened in the civil wars between the Presbyterians and the um, Anglicans and and the what the effects of henry when he broke from rome and made himself the head of and elizabeth which you tried to make a compromise that was going to oppress wasn't going to alleviate the oppression on the catholics or puritans so they learn from all these histories what would happen if they did certain things so the bill of rights the disestablishment clause you know you can just see the wisdom of being not just starting with God's law and making it everything, but steeping our Constitution in a, a really profound reading of history. Um, and Hawthorne was active politically
4: in the 1840s and 1850s. He was a friend of President and,
0: until he be, Until he took a job in the Custom House and then... He, cause he, but <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding, <laughs> I know. They sent him to England as an ambassador
4: later to uh, take care
0: of him. <laughs> Okay, let's Let's go to the end. Very quickly, I just want to read a couple of passages um, to summarize the last eight chapters. In chapter 17, um, Hester has reached a point where she's seen Dimmesdale's health fail so badly. And she knows Chillingworth is his physician and believes that he's... Doing things actively to um, to increase that that um, the decay, the deterioration that's taking place in Dimsdale, and she regrets having concealed his identity. So she wants to meet with Dimsdale and let him know to help him get out of harm's <coughs> way. So she plans to meet him in the forest. He's coming back from a, from meeting somebody, and and she waits for him. They're in the forest. When they come together, I, I don't want to read these because I want to get to the last questions. But they're both described as ghosts from another world. Because remember, they—they're st- Hawthorne is a—I mean—one of the—you know—answers, Jay. Again, what he did with language, you know, the world he opened up through his language is so extraordinary. I mean, who write, what writers besides Melville in the you know nineteenth century, twentieth century, nineteen hundreds could do that, or sorry, nineteenth century, eighteen fifteen. Um, she asks forgiveness for having concealed, and you remember Dempster's response was, this is what, I don't forgive you. <laughs> Just, he's so outraged to know that the, the confident has been the one working harm, and he was in harm's way and with no protection, so he's really <clears throat> angry at her. She clasps him to herself and will not let him go until he forgives her, and he does. And, and both of them say that Chillingworth's sin was greater than either of their sins because, the words are, he violated the sanctity of the human heart. Now remember, because we've talked about this, C.S. Lewis does it, Plato does it, all the great thinkers, in his mind, man is angelic. Okay, Um, Alan Tate's claim is the Protestant mind lives too much in its mind because it depends on a reading of Scripture. You're there intellectually. In his mind, man's angelic. In his belly, he's a beast. That's Platonic. It's in his heart that he's most human. And what Hawthorne's trying to do through this whole story, as with Ishmael, with Melville, is to open the heart, to help, to help make us more capable of, of accepting our sins, making a place for them, not being afraid of them, and carrying a greater spirit of forgiveness, sympathy with others, instead of being so ready to condemn And um, she says that the sin that they committed, these are her words, had a consecration of its own, that there was something good in it, even though it was outside the law. And according to the law, it would have been evidence that they were damned, because that's that black, white world. And it's the first time in seven years that the two of them have been at peace, because it's only in each other's presence that they know who they really are. So it's a moment of extraordinary freedom and relief to be able to stand in the presence of a sinner instead of feeling like you're condemned. Um, in I want to read this in Chapter 18 called A Flood of Sunshine. Hester unclasps the brooch in her hair. I hope everybody... No. I'm not sure that you guys are as bad as I am, but so you are, you're not going to see the bad, probably, but... I'm hoping everybody saw here that this was like a reenactment of their sin. She lets down her hair, she takes off the brooch. The two have returned to that state. So even though there's, I don't think there's a sexual consummation, this is in some sense, they're returning to that moment. It would be absolutely forbidden by this community. She lets down her hair, she takes that thing off her breast. Um, um, page 167, <coughs> now, this is what's interesting, but remember this, remember, we've talked about the force as the, as the meeting place of the black man, the man, and where the black masses take place, okay? Here, so bottom 166, the decision once made, so remember, her, and this is hers, not his, her decision is if the two of them are going to have any freedom or relief from this suffering, they've got to flee. Her suggestion is to get away, either to go west or go back. And it's interesting, her decision is to go back to the world they've left, which means in some ways going back to a Catholic Europe, or at least a divided Europe, but Catholicism there. 167. It was the exhilaration effect upon a prisoner just escaped from the dungeon of his own heart of breathing the wild, free atmosphere of an unredeemed, unchristianized, lawless region. His spirit rose, as it were, with a bound and attained a near prospect of the sky. a deeply religious temperament, there was inevitably a tinge of the devotional in his mood. Do I feel joy again? cried he, wondering. If not the germ of, of it was dead in me. O oh, Hester, thou art my better angel, I seem to have flung myself six stain, sin stain, six, six sin stain, and sorrow blackened down upon these forest leaves. This is already the better life. Why did we not find it sooner? What's the problem here? I mean, it's, it's, it's hidden. It's not, we'll, we'll get it. But anybody? A danger here for the two of them? Let's say they flee. They, you know that they don't. I mean, They're, they're not. But if they did flee, could their fleeing back to Europe remove the sin in both of them? Can you ever no. leave your sins behind? It doesn't matter where they're going to go. You know what, what's interesting here is they're going back to an unchristianized, unbaptized world. That's what nature represented. So even though this whole episode is presented in a positive light, that it's a natural reenactment of their sin. It's a beauty. Pearl's going to show us that she's absolutely at home here. So while there's this beauty, something really good, it's also the unredeemed. That's the nature. So to go back to that world is to give up your graces and go back to the natural man, and we know in this world the natural man is depraved. Um, so speaking, she undid the clasp that fastened the scarlet letter, taking it from her bosom, threw it to a distance among the withered leaves. The mystic token alighted on the hither hither verge of the stream. With a hand's breadth farther flight, it would have fallen into the water and given the little brook another woe to carry. Because remember the description of the brook—it's a this flowing thing in nature, is that it carries all these woes. It's like an image, Dante, the ancient world, an image of the grief of history. Um, um, Down below, a crimson flush was glowing on her cheek that had been so long pale. Her sex, her youth, and the whole richness of her beauty came back from what men call the irrevocable past, and clustered themselves with her maiden hope and a happiness before unknown within the magic circle circle of this hour. And as if the gloom of the earth and sky had been but the effluence eff- of these two mortal hearts, it vanished with their sorrow. All at once, with a sudden smile of heaven, forth-burst the sunshine pouring very flood into the obscure forest, gladdening each green leaf, transmuting the yellow fallen ones to gold, and gleaming adown the gray trunks of the solemn trees. What had been in shadow is now bright, nature approves. There's no other way to put this moment. And it's, it, it is almost overwhelming to me because this, this would be scandalous to the Puritan community. What Hawthorne is doing is, is showing even though they're in sin, this is, this is almost more Catholic because nature is not fallen. I mean, to us. It's wounded, but nature is a glory. It shows God's goodness. Here he's getting close to that. You know? They're in sin, but she takes off. They they're both are restored. They've recovered some good. And to signal that, the sun comes out. Nature's approving. There's something good here in this moment. Um, they call Pearl, and um, as soon as Pearl approaches them and sees that Hester doesn't have the scarlet letter, she goes, she gets frantic. Um, on 170, Remember, over and over and over again, you know, in the middle of 170, she had been offered to the world these seven years past as the living hieroglyphic in which was revealed the secret they so darkly sought to hide. All written in this symbol, all plainly now. Remember, each sin is a sign of a deeper sin invisible in every soul. It's the sin of absolute corruption from the fall. These are all signs. And Pearl is the living hieroglyph, she's the embodiment physical embodiment of that sin. So, over and over again, she's been referred to as an image of the sin itself. She comes to the brook and sees Hester without the letter. She gets furious. She keeps pointing to it. Dimsdale does nothing. He says, quiet her down. He's just so shaken by, cut this guy. You want to grab him and shake him. <laughs> anyway, he says, "Quieter," because he's going to be undone. Hester tries to quiet her. and she can't, on 173. But Pearl, not a witch, startled, um, she burst into a fit of passion, gesticulating violently, throwing her small figure into the most extravagant contortion. She accompanied this wild outbreak with piercing shrieks, with the woods reverberated, reverberated on all sides, so that alone as she was in her childish and unreasonable wrath, it seemed as if a hidden multitude were... Lending her their sympathy and encouragements like demons are seen in the brook once more. Was the shadowy wrath of pearls? It multiplies, crowned and girdled with flowers, but stamping its foot wild that is, it's everywhere. And in the midst of it all, still pointing its small finger at Hester's bosom. Go down. I know nothing that I would not sooner encounter than this passion in a child. In pearls' young beauty, as in the wrinkled witch, it has a preternatural effect repeatedly. Pearl's called the witch child, she's likened to a witch. This description that Hawthorne gives here of Pearl corresponds exactly to the descriptions of some of the people who were accused of being witches. That was evidence that they were outside that community. Now remember, Pearl's um, an exile, she's a, what's the word I'm looking for when you're, ostracized. They're ostracized, she stands outside the children, they make fun of her, she's called a witch child, she will shortly, again by the sailors, one of the sailors refers to as a witch child, she said to him, you ever say that name again, I'll put a curse on one of your ships, <laughs> and the guy quiets down. <laughs> um, but it's, this, this is what's going to lead to the execution of, what, a hundred or more people, most of them were women, um, because of this emotional outburst. So. And Pearl will be alive, because this will be fifty years, roughly fifty years from this time. So she'll be alive to see it, um, or know about it. Um, when this happens, they come, and Pearl says, "Will you kiss me?" Because he's, you know, wants a kiss, and he's, he won't. She won't. It won't. It, it waits on the end, and then Dimsdale leaves. I don't want to. I wish we had more time, but we don't. When he leaves. What happens? Do you all remember? It's so, I think it's so important for understanding what, the way Hawthorne, remember, who was a product of this Protestant world, who took it on himself to redeem, who's writing this book, and you know that my claim is it's going to end on Inauguration Day. It says a new man is coming. What Hawthorne is doing is trying to bring a new spirit to this world to help redeem. He's doing what the ancient poets did. He's carrying the past forward and redeeming it. He's trying to bring something to this Protestant world that it needs. And we're seeing it all, the sense of sin and the sympathy, and to get rid of this condemning spirit. But what happens? Do you remember when he leaves the forest and goes back to town?
2: He seems to be unburdened.
0: Oh. Do you remember what he does, Bev, with the people he encounters, the minister and the young girl? and the Oh, same. he, he <laughs> has
2: wicked, wicked thoughts.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and kind of holds his tongue, but does the, Yes ignores the young woman and, and
0: But whispers evil things. Okay. He's tempting the minister. He's tempting this young girl who looks at him as a saint, and he goes to the sailors because he knows they're. And by the way, where's their ship from, and where's the ship going? Spain. Spain. Yeah. Is that important? Yes. Why? Back to the old world, <clears throat> or the Catholic world. Don't, let, don't overlook these things. It's from, that's not an accident. This ship is headed for Spain. He, Dimmesdale wants to go to these sailors because he knows they use these, this foul language. And he mixes in and he can suddenly let go. What's Hawthorne showing us? He whispers sinister things in the minister's ear, in the girl's ear. So he's tempting her out of this way of looking at him as this holy saint. What's going on?
3: Well, he's claiming what he's depressed repressed for all, all his life He's had to deny these things that were part of human nature and he hasn't been able to put words to it now that he finally has this conversion experience or awakening this stuff comes to the surface and it's so intense it's almost uh, it's almost out of control it's right on the edge of losing it yeah uh, and it's like um, they say when you practice centering prayer, you open yourself to the unconscious, and things come to the surface that are not very pretty. <laughs>
0: this is why I said a while ago. I think I'm worse than you guys. I don't think this is a conversion moment, but I. The but the dynamic you're giving, it's there. It's that. Remember, he, there's a Protestant quality. It'll, it's inescapable, even though he's like Melville. He's trying to escape it. He comes out of that forest, returning to his natural state. What's the natural state for a Puritan? evil. He's going back. I mean, this is a reversion more than a conversion. He suddenly, I mean, what he's showing us is they've tried to escape the sin. She flings off the thing she had, puts it on, they're planning to flee. What Hawthorne is saying is there's no way you revert to that natural <clears throat> human being. You're in trouble. You, that is, you've, re, you've rejected the only thing that can help you, which is grace. That's that black, white world. And we get this reinforced with Chillingworth because remember from the interview, the opening interview when he goes into the cell to talk with Hester? Every description of him is of a a good man. I mean, over and over, Hawthorne emphasized that he was a good man. He was studious. He loved studies. He loved knowledge. He wanted to be a good man. Um, He worked with the Indians as a part of wanting to learn this goodness, but he's an image of the natural man. Without grace... And when he comes home and finds that Esther is pregnant, what takes over is this wanting vengeance to get back, and he becomes consumed by it. There's no help for him in grace. He doesn't turn there. He's the, and remember, we look, he wants to heal Dimsdale thinking that his natural powers, his powers as a natural man, are sufficient to heal the soul of, a, of another human. That's blasphemous to Dimsdale. Only Christ can do that. So when Dimsdale leaves the forest... I, it, it's so well, it's so, it's so, it's wonderful to watch what Hawthorne's doing, where C- Dimsdale revert. He thinks he can get free, but it's left him defenseless against this unconscious, you know, just these deeper disordered things in the human soul that, um, at least before, even when, when he was hiding, he had the protections of a belief, you know, he was trying to live as a minister and... Okay, I want to. Does
3: does he not become, well, seeking revenge becomes the central motive. (coughs) And it consumes him and it really destroys him, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yep. Now, what what I was thinking of, uh, it's like what he did uh, um, to Dimsdale would be equivalent to what um, Iago did to.
0: Yep. uh, yeah. It, it's like they're
3: practicing a certain type of evil destruct yeah. And it's incredibly destructive. <coughs> yeah.
0: yeah. I couldn't agree more. And the parallels to me exact on if you look at modern literature, um, beginning with the Renaissance and Shakespeare, Iago to me is the perfect image of the natural man um, given in to the worst things. I mean he there he says, I am not that am or it's the inversion of I am that am um, Everything about him wants to hurt. He says, I'm nothing if I'm not critical. Everything he does is to destroy. And Dimsdale, at the end, the parallel to me, he's just, he's like another, it's another, it's what is it, 150 years away or 100, yeah. Same, Chillingworth is one of the, I think one of the most extraordinary images of a evil man, modern literature. And we're gonna count another one in um, Dostoevsky, in this first volume.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh,
1: <laughs> is is there any significance to the the bro that Pearl was on one side and wouldn't cross it? I'm, Go know, ahead. Do you have a thought on that? On that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. They were they kept
2: trying to get her to come, yeah. and she wouldn't cross that. Yeah, and it was like. um I don't know if it was like good and
0: evil or, or death and life, or I just thought that was a boundary. It is. I mean, you, I think you're absolutely right on. When I, I, I don't think I can give you an exact answer, but I couldn't agree with you more with the question. It reminded me of, of all of you should be aware of this. I mean, we saw it in Homer, we saw it in Virgil. It, it becomes really explicit in Dante at the top of Purgatory. Because remember, the two rivers were the river of Unoe, which was the river into the underworld in the ancient world. It's there at the top of purgatory and the the river of uh know and that sticks. No, it sticks I mean, below Lay it. and up to oh. Lay it. Huh?
2: Layeth?
0: Yeah, Nothing. is it I, something. something like that? Yeah, but there anyway, one is the um, washing away of evil deeds and the other is restoring a memory of good deeds. So both of them have as their aim getting free because they can't go into the heavens carrying sins. Purgatory washes them away. The river in Hawthorne, or the stream in Hawthorne, I think, has a more negative. But he's aware of those boundaries, and I think he's using it. To me, I I think it's, I'm not sure of this, but my tendency is to think that it's an image of the woe that one has to carry. By taking off that letter, it's as if Hester is denying that she has to carry that woe anymore. And Pearl's on the other side, furious. It's really important, because what Hawthorne is saying is, if we don't learn to carry our sins and make them a part of our lives and how we treat each other, we will never learn how to love. The the sympathies of the human heart. When Pearl gets furious, she's saying, put that letter back on. That's your sin. I mean, that's unconscious. But it's like a child's intuition. I think the brook, you're right to point it out, is a reminder that the boundary there has to do with woe. When Hester takes that thing off, it's like she's she's returning to this world of freedom, thinking that they can flee, that that will do it. It will not do it. You can't escape your sins. I mean, well, in this world. Let me wait on that, but... um, I just want to quickly look, you know, in the procession, I would like to look at this, but we don't have time, but on page 199 um, around there, Hester and Pearl meet Mistress Hibbins, and she talks about Dimsdale in the forest, and Hester's response is, "I don't know anything you're talking about." And um, Hibbins actually gives a prophecy that Dimsdale see if I can, just, will,
3: how the hell did she come up with that? I mean, it's almost. She's I mean, a witch. It's a perfect quote. I she's mean, a witch. She's a witch. Oh, okay. No, and what's so, your answer? Because I mean, what, well, I'm just thinking that it's like <clears throat> she was a witness to this, and she had the perfect <coughs> truth. It was almost like a test. Are you going to own this? And she does, and he doesn't. Uh, and it's like
0: it's on 198. Or I just was she,
3: well, that's where she would go as a witch into that. Was she one of the ones that were killed hmm. later?
0: She's Always. she's executed four years after this. long before the witch trials. In four, I think it's roughly four or five years from this point. She will actually historically, this woman is a historical will be executed. On one ninety-eight, just quickly, I don't want to take time, but she says um, Hibbins alludes to this meeting and and Dimmesdale going there. Um, it's not for me to talk lightly of a learned and pious minister of the world like Mr. Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale. Hester's denying it. Fie, woman, fie, cried the old lady, shaking her finger at Hester. Does thou think I have been to the forest so many times, and have yet no skill to judge? Yea, though no leaf of the wild garlands which they wore while they danced be left in their hair. I know thee, Hester, for I behold the token we may all see in the sunshine, and it glows like a red flame in the dark. Thou wearest it openly, so there need be no question about that. But this minister, let me tell thee, because I hope everybody's clear. Dim's In this world, Dimsdare is in danger of damnation because he's not committing in sin. That's evidence that he's not among the elect. He's not in that Puritan group. That, is everybody clear on this division? Mm-hmm. majority of the Puritans, you live by these rules. And, so from that perspective, he's damned. But this minister, let me tell you, in thine ear, when the black man sees one of his own servants, signed and sealed, so shy of owning to the bond, because he's not admitted his sin, he hath a way of ordering matters so that the mark shall be disclosed in open daylight to the eyes of the world. What is it that the minister seeks to hide with his hands? It will be in open daylight. What's going to happen in just a few moments? So let me go back to this question. What's the author doing? This is a prophecy, and it will come true, and it's from a witch. Now what do we say about this? God, the irony is just multiplying. I mean, one of the obvious ironies, she's going to be executed. Should she have been, she may have a preternatural knowledge of things that, and people are going to say which. Let me go back, you know that I've put this forward, that I, I think that The Protestant mind is largely Platonic, C.S. Lewis says it. The Catholic is largely Aristotelian, starting with the common, starting with a knowledge of forms that are peculiar to angels, not us. In Plato's Phaedrus, he says there are four kinds of love. Socrates is answering a man who's, um, who's trying to persuade a young boy, Phaedrus, not to love a lover to love somebody who doesn't love because he, this man, is homosexual. And he wants to use all his persuasive powers to get this kid into bed with him. And he gives him all these reasons why you should not love a lover. He gives the <coughs> speech, Socrates says it's a bad speech. He gives the same speech, but orders it up to show the importance of rhetoric. How important learning to order your thinking is. He starts to leave and, um, and then says, I've done the gods a disservice. I spoke against love. So he has to come back and refute the speech he's just given. Is that clear? There are three speeches. Lysias, the guy who wants to persuade the kid. Socrates, who gives the same speech, but shows the importance of rhetoric, how to order a speech, starts to leave and then comes back and says, I can't do this, I've offended the God. Now he has to speak in defense of love. He says there are four kinds of loves. I can't remember them right now. But one of them is madness, that there are people wh- whom the world sees as mad because they can see divine, they can see things others don't. They shouldn't be executed for it. We should, so the question here I'm asking is, was she executed because she matched all their criteria for a person being insane and outside their community? You know? I mean, she, she is so knowledgeable about what goes on in the forest. Is that prophetic? Is it evil? Preternatural? Did it justify? You know, it just, it's a... But anyway, here she's prophetic, so I think Hawthorne's increasing his ironies. We, This is a prophetic moment, and it comes from Hibbins. That's somebody else, and it's gonna come true.
3: But she's the source of truth, not madness.
0: Yes, well... <clears throat> or the kind of truth that only comes with madness. Yeah, yeah, um, because aren't, aren't most of us, aren't, I mean, isn't there a natural tendency to be afraid to step out of that group, to say things that the group will think are awful? There will be the um, occasion for condemning you because it doesn't fit in with what everybody else is saying? You're too afraid um, offend somebody, which is a, I mean, a, a paralyzing fear in our country today. Or, you say everything you want because you're trying to, you know, this adversary, you try and say everything you want because you know that everything else that these people are saying is wrong. I mean, it's just, it's that black-white condition. I want to go to the end in this confession. In 18, um, I, I don't want to read it because I want to get to this question dimsdale gives his sermon and it's described in terms of tongues of flame it's obviously inspired by the holy spirit and hawthorne describes the people being unified this is an inaugural day we've talked about the divisions that rack this community right now for the first time in this whole story the people are one And it's through this sermon, he brings everybody together for the first time. This is the new man, something's about to happen.
3: Well, it's a a new community, too.
0: (laughs) Yes, yeah. Um, Take a look at 205. Um, A few lines down, there were human beings enough and enough of highly wrought and symphonious feeling to produce that more impressive sound that the organ tones of the blast or the thunder or the roar of the sea, notice how they're all metaphors connecting them to nature, they were so great. Even that mighty swell of many voices blended into one great voice by the universal impulse, which makes likewise one vast heart out of the many. For the first time in this book, Communities United, it's Sutton Brown. Never from, the, never from the soil of New England had gone up such a shout, never. So we're going back to a founding because shortly after they found him, remember there's the divisions. and Hutchinson um, never had gone up such a shout. Never on New England soil had stood the man so honored by his mortal brethren as the preacher. Not the governors, not all these other ministers, him. How fared it with him? Were there not the brilliant particles of a halo on the hair about his head? so etherealized by spirit as he was and so apotheosized by worshiping admirers, did his footsteps in the procession really tread upon the dust of the earth it's like he's elevated Um, um go on over he takes hester and pearl up the scaffolding now it's in public so for the first time in the book he's in public and he's heading towards we don't know what but this is the end that was implied in the beginning um, he turns to Hester. He can't make it himself. He's too weak. Top of two seven. Thy strength, Hester, but let it be guided by the will which God had granted me. This wretched and wronged old man. That's Ch- Chillingworth, supposing with all his might, with all his own might, and the fiends come, Hester, come support me up, up yonder scaffold. He takes her up. To Dibsdale or Chillingworth wants her not to go because he knows. If he goes up there, he loses him. Chillingworth wants to damn Dimmesdale. The last thing he wants to do is see what's about to happen. Um, He says, Hath thou sought the whole earth over, he said, looking darkly at the clergyman? There was no one place so secret, so high place, nor lowly place, where thou couldst escape me, save on this very scaffold. Thanks be to him who hath led me hither. Is this not better murmured he, than what we dreamed of in the forest, I know not, I know not. Hester says better, yea, so we must die little pearl with it. For thee and pearl, be it it as God shall order, and God is merciful, let me do that which now is made plain. He's going to, right now, I don't want to go through it, but he confesses. He said, the sin that you saw in Hester seven years ago was mine. You behold a sinner now. He's saying that he's the father of pearl in public. Um, people of, To a people of New England, he cried with a voice that rose over them, high, solemn, and majestic, yet have always a tremor through it, and sometimes a shriek, struggling up out of the fathom of death, depth of remorse and woe. He said, Behold, um, but there stood one in the midst of you, at whose brand of sin and in infamy you have not shuddered. Um, go down. It was on him, he continued, God's eye beheld it. The angels were forever pointing at it. The devil knew it well and fretted it continually with the touch of his burning finger, but he did hide it cunningly. Um, Now at the death hour, he stands up before you. He bids you look again at Hester's scarlet letter. He tells you that with its mysterious horror, it is but the shadow, here it is again, of what he bears in his own breast, and that even this, his own red stigma, is no more than the type of what he has in his inmost. Remember, this is the visible sign of spiritual, it's almost immeasurable. He sinks down. Um, and he asked forgiveness for um, Chillingworth. My little Pearl, he then says, dear little Pearl, will thou kiss me now? God, I can remember breaking up. Pearl, will thou kiss me now? Thou was not yonder in the forest, but now thou will. Pearl kissed his lips, a spell was broken. The great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore part had developed all her sympathies. She would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever do battle with the world, but be a woman in it. Towards her mother, too, Pearl's errand as a messenger of anguish was all fulfilled." It's not until sin is acknowledged that one can actually begin to love. She's been, And it, it waited on her father, you know, her parent. Um, but Hester's only partially done it, really. Um, Hester says, "...shall we not spend our mortal life together? Surely, Surely we have ransomed one another with all this woe. She's saying, all of our suffering has been a penance. We paid it off. That comes from her. Hush, Hester, hush, said he with tremulous solemnity. The law we broke, the sin here so awfully revealed. Let those alone be in thy thoughts. I fear, I fear, it may be that when we forgot our God, when we violated our reverence, each for the other soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter. She's saying, our suffering will bring us together. He's saying, no. Vain to hope that we should meet hereafter in everlasting and pure reunion. God knows, and he's merciful. He hath proved his mercy most of all in my afflictions by giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast, by sending yonder dark and terrifying old, old man because we're always talked about Christians, the old man in us and the new man, and we know that this inauguration celebration is about the coming of a new man. Dimmesdale's confessed this is the new man in Christ that he's bringing to this community. Um, by sending you under dark and terrible old man to keep the torture always at re- heat, by bringing me hither to die this death of triumphant ignominy before the people, had either of these agonies been wanting, I have been lost forever. Praise be his name, he will, his will be done. Farewell, he dies. Um, okay. Now, I, I've got two sets of questions here. Um, the first one, in terms of the book, what do you guys make of this confession? How do you understand it? Any, qu- any reservations, any questions about it, any difficulties?
2: He was freeing his spirit.
0: Hmm.
2: He was freeing his spirit, Yeah. letting go of the sin before the community. I guess. Hoping for
0: right. eternal yep. peace. Yep, yep. I mean, that's certainly the, you know, the biggest part of it. Does, does anybody not have any reservations about the fact that he dies on this moment? No. He doesn't survive. He doesn't have to do a penance. He doesn't have to... Hester had to suffer for it. He's, he's out of it now. He's confessed. It's a heroic moment, I would say. I think all of us, when we come to this moment, are so glad. He finally is rid of this guilt. It's gone. Um, so I think we're meant to feel nothing but good. But does anybody have any concerns or... Thoughts about the fact that, on that moment, he dies, and so is spared having to do anything in this community afterwards. Does that? Reason? Well, that's
2: kind of equivalent to today when somebody that murders goes on death row, and somebody suffers in prison, you know, for 50 years, and someone else is executed immediately and doesn't have to suffer, and people are, you know, upset by that. He kind of admits or gets accused of his sin or crime, and then gets. Executed, so he doesn't have to suffer. It. I think all those who are left behind, su- they're suffering, and that's what Hester and Pearl were left behind, suffering, and they
0: the, have been. The the one of the differences in your example is that we don't know. I mean, you didn't bring it into your example. I don't know where your thinking's going on it. But at least in that case, we don't know if the guy who committed a murder before he's executed um, confessed his guilt because that matters. One. How many people go to their execution, lots lots of people, I know this is a fact, lots of people go to their execution and say, I wouldn't have done anything different. I mean, they're just adamant in their, you know, what they do before they die is a really important thing. What he does here is confess Mm -hmm. and dies. So he's a little bit different from either of those, but um, no, none?
2: He does suffer. Those seven years, yes. he, With the guilt, it yes, it's eating him up. Yep. And deteriorating his health. So even though he confesses, um, he—I mean, I think he was suffering as much as I wanted him to uh, confess early on right. with Hester right. and suffer right. with her.
0: Right. Right. Let me put the question this way because I want to, I really want to flesh this out. Um, what kind of a, because you know, we all know from this book, one of the great problems once the sacraments are gone, there is no sacrament of confession here. The major burden through this whole book is he has nobody to whom he can confess. He believes, we know that from that scene with Chillingworth, that only God can forgive that. I read that passage where he said he's trying to pra- practice the Roman, the corrupted Roman rites. Why? Because he knows penance won't do it. That's a corruption in the Catholic world. Only God can forgive those sins. Only he can take them off. So it's like he's a parody of himself. And it's in that passage where he confesses his sins, and we learn at the moment that he confesses them, he was committing his worst sin. He was a hypocrite. Let me go back for a minute. In Dante's Purgatory, I would forty years ago I didn't know this. I mean, I, I would not have brought this, but now I can't read this without, and without. So now I'm going to another set of questions. In Dante's Purgatory, Dante's following the Gospel. You know that before Dante can enter the gates of Purgatory, there are those three steps: confessing sin, you know, acknowledge. You have to do that, or you can't. You can't be adamant and say, "I'm not going to. I don't ask for it. I'd do it again." That's an unrepentant soul. The opening to purgatory is repenting. You want to do away and they go in and they start doing penance. God gave Peter the two keys, the gold and the silver in Dante. The gold is the authority to bind and loose. And the silver is the wisdom with which to apply whatever you're doing there to help that penitent. Now just set those two worlds against each other for a second. We know that from Dante. Those of us who have done it, yeah? Gold is the authority. It's an extraordinary authority that Christ gave Peter. You have the authority to bind and loose. The silver is the wisdom with which to apply what you do. So, and you know that some priests in confession, just, you walk out of confession, sometimes a little bit amazed, I think. Um, priests can be all over the map on what they do, you know. Who has the wisdom with which to help the penitent? Dimsdale has ne- neither one of those. There's no objective authority. We know the danger for him because in that earlier scene when he confessed to the public in his sermon, he committed the biggest lie. There's nothing objective with which to gauge that confession. We know as readers that I think we all believe it's sincere. But here he is. There's no Christ. They don't believe in a sacrament. There's nobody to forgive him. Hester says, we've already done our penance. He says, hush, hush, don't say that. There's no way to undo it. We can't hope to be together in a pure union in heaven. The the weight of that guilt is so bad. So what kind of a precedence is this for confession? If this is the precedent, this is what you have to go through to confess, who will do it? Is everybody following the line of my questioning? This is titanic. It's, It's enormous. It's... The heroism, the amplitude of it is so great. That's, I think, why we're emotionally so taken by it. It's such a, you know, this whole book has been leading us to this moment when you can finally get free of it. But my question is, what kind of precedent is this for a community as a necessary condition that we have to learn? By the way, Hawthorne said, I can't remember if it's in a novel, that's been too long, but he either said it in personal notes to Melville or somebody or in a novel he said, give some indication of your guilt he, he was you know, you hear that he's responding to that puritan community who wants to think of itself as among the saved we're the saved that's why it's so easy for them to look down that's why the whole thrust of this novel is make a place for your sins because it will help you be more merciful in what you do with other people so it's all been leading to this moment but the one of the interesting ironies to me that i didn't see and you know, I didn't. I don't think I felt strong enough. Is he's free. Of, he doesn't have to deal with it. There's no penance because you know that when you t- in our church when you when you confess the priest will say for your penance <laughs> go say three Hail Marys. You know, I mean, it seems almost silly, but it, it's 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 an attempt to show that God's mercy is infinitely greater than anything we can do to atone for our sins because if this is what we're left with, they're enormous. If this is a precedent, who's going to do this? Are You all following? So you die damned. You're asking me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm 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 going to say no. That God so knows. So no there was no penance. No, but it's here. It's one of the, here. Okay, let me go to the Catholic. Question. What's I mean, the difference? Where are you going with this? Is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Well, do yeah. you, you all see the problem. If this is a precedent, who's going to confess? I mean, I'd say it's it would be very hard for anybody to go into a confession. Admitting in front of a public, here, here is the dark side of my soul. And everybody in the community is going to do that.
2: So the Catholic Confession is a whole lot easier. You go and you talk to a priest who represents Christ, and it may hurt.
1: Okay. As, a, as a former Baptist, <coughs> there, there is a belief that if you, know, if you are sincere, all you need is a prayer to God. You don't need to I do know. it in front of a crowd or anything I else. Know. Yeah, you just get down on your knees, <coughs> embracing your sin and saying, "God, I did it. Yeah. Forgive me and give me the strength to move on." Yeah, you don't need to be in front of a crowd or anything else. Yeah, and to but me I think that's the distinction—the real yeah. distinction between you know what what I know is the Baptist face. So I'm not going to try to yeah you know spread it out over all. Right. Protestants, Puritans, and everything else, but as a as a fellow growing up in the Baptist Church, if you if you meant it, can, confession was was within your reach without going through
0: what he. Yeah, believe. here's the, here's the here's the interesting light that my years in the church has shed on this. It's raised it, and that's why I'm trying to put them as questions. If we, because I think Hawthorne and Melville are trying to do everything they can to answer disorders that they're seeing in this they've both been formed of it, they carry it. That's why they know it so well. And they know the dangers. We know from the story that there's a danger to Dimsdale because he's already confessed and he he lacked a sincerity. Um, you my, wait, so let me try to tackle a couple of things right before you respond. My answer to the question is that I believe he's saved. I mean I, I don't believe a God looking at this was the this happened I can't see a merciful God. But what I'm looking at is, you know, his saying, he's a merciful God, hush Hester, this has not done it. You know, it, um, we won't come together in this purity. I mean, there's a very, very dark side. One of the interesting differences in the sacraments is we believe that there's an objective authority. It isn't just left to the conscience because sometimes that conscience be- can become relativized. We know that. Um, the, the way, the, the, by and large, the broadstream Protestant, not the fundamentalist Protestant, but the broadstream Protestant allows homosexual marriages, is not a sin. There's a lot we can do, going back to what Tom said, there's a lot that we can do that keeps us from getting to that dark unconscious, that, what he's called that false kind of... So people can go down on their knees and in their hearts feel they're being sincere, I'm assuming, I know for myself, and I'm assuming lots of you, had that, that very often we do that and we learn later that there was more there that we didn't get to. We, we, we struggle to try to make a good confession. It's, it's hard to do that even privately. When the atonement's given, it's not, so there's a tendency here in this world to relativize whatever anybody thinks may be good enough because it's left up to the individual will there's no objective authority christ gave the keys to peter said you know that's a requirement and the other thing is the penance i mean what will answer what 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 in the wisdom of a priest what can he say that will that will serve as a penance to take this on what's interesting to me is this builds up to such a powerful end but he has do he 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 doesn't survive it he doesn't have to do anything so, in the Catholic Church, a couple of things. When I set it against this, what I'm seeing now, and I'm getting away from the book, completely away from the book, is that there is something, once again, platonic. It's this grasp of, you know, the, Milton, that this angelic knowledge is what defines man. That There's this tendency towards this great heroism, this overstraining. It can take the, it can take the form of strained for too much good, too heroic, or despair. I think one of the reasons that, you know, the women who, who got close to Hester pulled back is because it's frightening to come out. Because to answer this in this world where there are no sacraments, you've got to do these extraordinary things. They, they're so amplified in their wills and hearts. In a Catholic world, we go to confession believing that when, when the priest absolves us, that's, he's in persona, He's acting in Christ's authority to forgive that sin. And it's forgiven. So we come out of confession freed. We don't have to wait through um, this. So in one sense, you can say it's far, more, it's far more human. It brings it down to a human scale, less titanic, less angelic. And it, it, it puts on you a burden of mercy in, in the way you undertake your penance. And it should teach you to bring a greater mercy to others. So you're going to carry that on in your life day by day. When the priest says, Do these things, Bob, you know, to answer, and we keep giving forgive we are given forgiveness. The assumption is that the more contrite we are, <clears throat> the more we go back to confession and are forgiven, the less likely we'll be like those four women in the beginning, the way they condemn, they're at the end. The less likely we'll be condemning like that will bring something more merciful. It doesn't do away with the law because we're as Catholics. In this world, there's no law. It's your faith. They're antinomian. We're asked to obey the law, but we're asked for. Sure. We're asked to bring a mercy to it in everything we do. Dimsdale looks forward to none of that. That didn't hit me 40 years ago. Now I look at the scene and I can't, I can't look at it without thinking, wow. This is remarkable. Um, Jay, go ahead.
4: But this is a guy who, days before, was ready to get on a boat to Spain and continue an adulterous relationship. I And then when that plan falls through, I had more of a sense of his being trapped and feeling this was his only way out of all the torment that he's going through.
0: So it's a cop-out? Uh,
4: well, he, he struggles through the whole book with this failing health, failing health, failing. You know, he's a feeble guy, and people, you know, everybody comments about his health. And now that he knows there's no way out, is you know, I don't know. I was kind of left with mixed feelings. Did yeah, I see I it as I, I, heroic? I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't, I don't know th- that
2: he even knew that the plan had fallen through. He was, when the sailors. Hester does, king. yeah. Hester knows.
4: Oh, he may not uh, He
2: He was giving his sermon when the sailors right. came in mm. and, and Chillingworth smiled at Hester and let her know that he knew.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, I think, think that's that too knew. negative a reading myself. <laughs> well, no, I do, I do. I think, I think the way he's presented Dimsdale through the whole thing, he's not Iago, he's not Chillingworth. Chillingworth is an evil man. Mm-hmm. Dimsdale is a flawed, fallen man, but he's good. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a goodness in him. When he comes to the end, he has to muster up a courage he's never had, this, I don't think he's, it's a compound, I think he's genuinely sincere, honestly. And so it's, my answer to Fred is, I mean, if I'm... I can't, I can't play God, but in terms of the book, knowing our God, it's hard for me to believe he's not saved. The point that I'm raising is, it's really interesting, because we see this in movies all the time, in a platonic world, movies where a couple comes to some crisis, and the man has to do something, and he always dies... And the woman goes on. It's just it's a commonplace in American movies, heroic movies. And now now sometimes women are doing that too, but it's just to me it's so significant that Hawthorne had no way. He doesn't believe in Rome, even though he's, you know, Dimsdale goes back to and it's a Spanish ship that they're you know. He it just seemed he and he and Melville were so Melville when um, when when Ishmael hears about the town ho story, and he takes it back and we learn that so many of these things happen later, um, it's with Spaniards in a Catholic country and the Catholic faith keeps coming into it. I think both men, remember they're in a, in a Protestant culture. They are, they are so taken by that world, but in their minds it was, they can't get free of but they're both, they both know there's something not good, and they're both trying to answer. And you can see the sense that there's something there in this Catholic world. I wanted to have time, I'm not going to do it, but there are two main passages, um, one earlier and one at the end where, one earlier where it talks about Hester as a new woman and and that a new woman would have to be the savior of the world, and, and he picks it up again at the end when he describes Hester coming back. And you know when she comes back, she comes back freely. So she's a new woman. She's not, she's not forced to do it now. She comes back because she said, this was the spot of my crime. This is where I have to atone for it. And Hoster, Hawthorne says, that. She, oh, 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 oh. She, he said earlier, it's only when this old world is destroyed and this, what, the customary ways of men are gotten out of the way because they're all flawed, that a new woman can emerge as the savior. But if she does it, um, the danger is, um, I don't, I'm not putting it right, but she has to be able to do it without giving up her heart. And the problem is when she enters that world, she will become just like men using her head and lose her heart. And it's interesting because in both of those descriptions, it, it's as if he's intuitively got married. Mary does not live in her head. She's not like men in that way. Her her beginning, her initial response is yes. Long before, she, she doesn't have reason. She's not saying, only if you do this or only. It's a yes. It's an absolute, you know, she doesn't use her mind to qualify things. She's not doing what men do. So it's interesting that Hawthorne twice in this book describes this new woman and every one of the descriptions is the exact description of Mary. How how to save our hearts? Um, anyway, um, I, I offer those thoughts for you for what they're worth. I'm I'm just stunned, and you know, it troubles me more and more that he dies on the word. He does not have to. There's no penance. There's nothing to under. Um, there's not a mercy he has to learn to bring to the world with a new sense as a minister or a truthfulness. He's out of it now. It's so heroic. But it's heroism troubles me. Anyway, go ahead. Uh,
4: Just a comment that I was a little put off by the five page conclusion. If the book had ended with him dying and everything, I just felt Hawthorne threw in four or five new strings and trails that you know, One of them was, I mean,
0: they were all centered on Esther and his woman. All of them were focused on, and by the way, at the end, uh, by, and we're, we're taken back to those multiple possibilities, this technique that he uses, he ends describing the different responses of the people to Dibsdale's right. confession. Some people thought it was there, some people thought, all the ministers were blasé. They didn't see it. And he has no kind words for the people in religious office. All these Protestant ministers missed it. What was going on there? There's only a few people in the town who saw it and the readers. And I've been saying this from the beginning. The real question is, will we receive, remember Hawthorne's giving us this black rose. Will we receive this stuff? Will it do anything to our lives? Will it help uncover this false self that we have? And, but Dimmesdale doesn't have to face anything. I wasn't bothered by the end. What I'm really bothered with is that Anyway, you've heard mine, so for what they're worth. We start Murder in the Cathedral next week. You guys have a good, you all look too too long past (laughs) time. Thanks for your patience. Thanks for your patience.
1: (laughs) I try to maintain some kind of balance, I'm afraid I I have all my bases covered. (laughs) (laughs) Spoken like a true corrupt
2: businessman.
1: Good. I just do both, and I, I figure
2: I, I, I'm covered. I right? did.
0: <laughs> Frances, you are, you are halfway to heaven.
1: just an awesome
2: Christmas, but um, I just celebrated Christmas. Monday I got back. I couldn't see if you the, the okay, so got it.
0: My week is all so you messed know up. Oh, yeah, day. yeah. Those are good questions. Are you not going to join us? No,
1: I am, but I use the neck because I cannot read that little print. I like to. You know,
0: I think I got this because it was some of the editions we have. The print's even smaller.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, that's... that's uh, I can't do that anymore. <laughs> I can't either.
0: That's, what I that's like why I print them that size.
2: Yeah. That's why I like it. You know, you can do the font and you can have it on a <laughs> fold. Yep. And then the backlight, you know, kind of helps. I wanted to explain.
0: Okay. You don't have to explain anything This super conscientious soul of yours. You know that one of my missions in life is to try to quiet your, that soul of yours. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> it's hopeless. I'm trying
2: for remember the Don't say that. We're
0: supposed to have hope okay, just when it's okay. hopeless. Don't say that. How long have you been in this class, Necta? Oh, anyway, sorry, a go ahead. year and a half.
2: But um, Patrick was convinced we that, that was like because, I, I because he looked like him and because oh. his biological... Wow. We owe money sense. for brother's Ned care and stuff. Yes. ...very much like him. So when he got his DNA, it was kind of... Why
0: did he even do it?
2: Because he kind of wanted to prove that Rick was his father. And so the DNA showed
0: mm-hmm. very
2: similar. Mm-hmm german and irish and so for a while he thought he was but then this half-brother showed up who actually he thought was from his mother's side and turned out to be from his father's side wait hold on i want to stay there just i'm just gonna
0: did you bring all this
4: oh i didn't bring this but i brought this this and this and take it all home. no we're not but i'm (laughs)
2: I'm glad to take Thank you. It was delicious.
0: Can I take two of these? Absolutely. Take both, Take three. No, <laughs> Suzanne, no, Suzanne, and I'll share. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Barbara, sorry. Oh,
2: but that's all right. It's just that once he realized that
0: Oops.
2: that his biological father not only and his his mother didn't ever name the father, but so that would